0: Alright, so we're going to start a new series um, for the four weeks of Advent leading up to uh, the celebration of Christ's birth at Christmas. As you can see uh, on the screen, the title is The Awaited Savior. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some pieces of the Old Testament and see what, what was it that the Jewish people were waiting for. What was it that they were anticipating, expecting to happen... And so we're going to see some different aspects about it today. We're going to see that one aspect of what they were waiting for was a child, right? This is what we've seen in the Old Testament. Many of you probably know some of the verses we're going to look at today, but we're going to see what it is that they were expecting with this child. And then in the coming weeks, we'll cover some other things, such as one week we'll cover they were expecting a king and what that looks like, right? So just to give you some insight of where we're headed with all of it. But today is the coming child. Now, because of we're looking at the Old Testament and we're talking about what happens in the New Testament, we're going to be flipping through Bibles quite a bit, um, back and forth from the Old Testament says this, the New Testament gives us insight to that verse, and then we go back to another Old Testament verse about uh, something else told about the child. So we're going to be a little all over the place. You can see the sticky notes in my Bible for the sake of it. Um, But just pay attention to the screen, it's all up there. If you don't feel like flipping back and forth, and on your handout and your bulletin, all the verses are listed out. All right. so if you want to go back and look at any of them, don't feel the need to have to write anything down or anything like that. But, that's where we're headed, and we'll hopefully make through all of it today. So, let's pray together as we approach the time in God's Word. Father, we ask that you would Help us to gain insight this morning on the anticipation of those who are awaiting a Savior. As we celebrate Christ's birth in the coming weeks, may we we begin to understand and comprehend what it was that these people were longing for, because we also need exactly what they needed. It's just now we can look back and see it come to fruition in Christ, whereas they didn't know what it exactly was going to look like. But as we heard in the Advent reading today, and as we'll see in the passages, that we also are awaiting our Savior to come back again. So may we begin to understand what it means to have a biblical idea of hope as we look forward to the day when Christ will come to us again. But help our hearts and our ears to be ready to hear your word this morning and what it means for us as we look at this expectation of a child that was to come. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine your dream vacation, right? So... You have all sorts of expectations of what it's going to be like, right? Some of you are already thinking in polar opposites of each other. Some of you are thinking, I want a nice, cool, crisp kind of atmosphere and a cabin that's isolated away from everybody else. Some of you are thinking, I want it nice and warm on a beach that's probably surrounded with lots of people. Now, that might not be your preference, but you want the warm weather so you're willing to put up with it. Now, I want you to imagine your arrival at that vacation, regardless of where it is, when you show up, when you arrive, and you actually experience that vacation, odds are it's not going to be perfect. Something's not going to meet your expectations on that trip. But, Maybe some of your expectations will be met, so you will still enjoy yourself because you're getting to be near the water, or you're getting to be in the woods, or you're getting to enjoy the certain type of weather that you were looking for. Today, as we look at the coming of a child, we're going to see Jewish people read their expectations into this. Some of them were right, some of them were not. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the Old Testament text and say, what are the biblical descriptions of that child? And not try to let the Jewish influence of their expectations influence us, but we're going to say, what what was the real expectation of this child according to simply what Scripture said about him? So we're going to see three aspects of this coming child. The first one we're going to see that he was the promised offspring. We're going to see that he was God dwelling in a son, the son, and we're going to see that this child gives us the climax of circumcision, which is a sign that's given early on in the Bible. So first we're going to see that he is the promised offspring. So we read this, you heard this in the Advent reading already, right? It doesn't take long in the Bible, Genesis 3, to find out that there's a promise of a child to come, right? We're going to cover Genesis 3 in a moment, but it tells us that right from the get-go in the Bible, there's an expectation of a child, an offspring, that's going to come, And this initiates this trend throughout the rest of the Old Testament that God is going to make promises about an offspring that's going to come. We're going to look at three promises that he makes about this offspring. The first one is, this is going to be an offspring that blesses. Many of you know the story of Abraham, that God blesses him and Sarah in their old age with a child. But we can often forget that the promise to Abraham was not just the promise of a child, but of a certain offspring through whom blessing would come. That Isaac is really just the first child in the line of generations to come that ultimately lead in an offspring that gives a blessing that was promised to Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12. This is when God first calls Abraham and he tells him. Genesis 12 verse 1. You see the promises there. He promises Abraham to go into this land. He's going to give his family the land. He's going to make make Abraham's name great. And then he's also, through Abraham's line, through his offspring, is going to bless all nations. So there's this promise here that doesn't find its full fruition in Isaac. Isaac doesn't come along and bless all nations. There's an offspring later to come through whom the blessing goes to all nations. And he gets even more specific about this just a chapter later in Genesis 13. Let's read verse, starting in verse 14. It says, "...the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever." I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if no one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. So now there's a promise of not just land, but your offspring are going to be so numerous as the dust on the earth, that if somebody can count the dust, they can count how many offspring you have, which, by the way, you can't. So we have this promise of offspring, and with this offspring comes blessing. Not, not just the number of offspring are going to be blessed, but that they're going to be a blessing to all nations. Even at the beginning of Israel's history here with Abraham, there's already a promise that the blessing is not meant just for Israel, but it's meant for all the nations. But it has to happen through Abraham's offspring. And like I said, we know the story, we often think of Isaac, right? And it starts with Isaac, but that's not who the true offspring is. Because Paul gives us insight to this in Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament. Look at what he tells us in Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul makes the point here, because God told Abraham offspring and not offsprings, he was referring to one specific offspring, which is Christ. He's saying that though it happens through a line of generations, there was one ultimate offspring that all of this was pointing to. And that's Paul's whole argument in Galatians and in, in part of Romans is he's telling people Abraham wasn't justified by his works. Abraham wasn't justified because he circumcised his family or he was circumcised. He, didn't, he wasn't justified because of the law. Because by the way, Abraham never had the law. It was 430 years after him that the law came. So he's saying you, it, it's not by keeping the works of the law that saves you, which is what the Jewish people were starting to think. But his whole point is Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was saved by his faith. That's what initiated all of this. And so the way that all nations are blessed is by in Christ's coming, anyone who believes in him, no matter what nation they're from, they're saved. They can be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law that really refers to only the Jewish people. So we see that this is an offspring that blesses, that finds its fruition in Christ. We see that it's also an offspring that is going to reign. The covenant with Abraham is not the only covenant we see in the Old Testament. We see a covenant made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to what God tells him here. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we see an offspring that's going to come after David who's going to build the Lord a house, right? We know Solomon does that. But there's also an aspect here where God promises to David, your offspring is going to set up a throne that will be established forever. That doesn't happen with Solomon, right? The kingdom falls after the kings who come after Solomon. The kingdom falls and they're taken into exile, So Solomon doesn't set up a throne that's established forever. There's another offspring of David that's going to come, who's going to set up a throne, set up a kingdom that will last forever, that will reign forever. So when we see someone from the line of David show up in Mark chapter 1, this is the words of Jesus. Starting verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Catch what Jesus is saying here? David was promised that an offspring of his would have a kingdom that would be set up and established forever. Jesus shows up and says, there's a kingdom at hand. Right? There's the kingdom of God at hand. Now, we know that Jesus is inaugurating this kingdom, but then the question is, well, did Jesus' kingdom last forever? And isn't Jesus ascending to heaven? Where's the kingdom now? Which, by the way, it's here. But let me just give you one quick reference of the kingdom we see that Jesus set up. Revelation chapter 11. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That sounds like the promise made to David, doesn't it? That the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God, becomes the kingdom of Christ and he reigns forever. Forever. Christ's kingdom comes upon the world. It's at hand in Mark chapter 1, but by the time we get to Revelation chapter 11, it's taken over the world, and Christ reigns forever. So we have an offspring coming through Abraham that's going to bless. We have an offspring through David that's going to reign. And then we see, going back to our Genesis 3 passage, an offspring that's going to defeat This is not just an offspring that blesses all nations, not just an offspring that has a kingdom forever, but this is the offspring that defeats sin, that defeats death, that are the very essence of humanity from the moment Adam and Eve fell. There's a promise that Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. I saved this for the last aspect because it's the very hinge upon which every other aspect relies upon there's an aspect of victory to this coming offspring through eve which is why we see he's given the name jesus which means salvation look at this in matthew chapter 1 verse 21 she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus For, right, giving us a reason why you should call him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The reason he's given the name Jesus is because the name Jesus means Savior, salvation. And he's saving people from their sins. Just like Eve was promised that the head of the serpent is going to be crushed. We often have conversations about children and at what we expect them to become with their life, right? I doubt if you asked my father sitting back there that he expected this of me when I was a youngster. I can promise you he didn't expect this. Even Lydia and I talk about our own kids at their young ages of what they're going to become. Just last night, we were doing our prayers before bed, and... Sadie has a very compassionate heart. Sadie remembered last night that Paul didn't come to church last week because he was sick. And so she was asking first to pray for him and asking if she was going to get to see him at church tomorrow if he was all better yet. So we, obviously, something compassion-related fills Sadie. We don't know what that's going to mean, but we know that it's something like that. Albert is going to be adventurous, whatever that might mean. Asher, though he's just a month old, we can already see his kind of, if he, if he maintains his calm and collected attitude, he's going to be a peacemaker, probably between Sadie and Albert. <laughs> Upon Christ's arrival, there was no question of what he was going to do. This was the offspring who was going to defeat sin and death. This was the offspring through whom all nations would be blessed. And this was the offspring that would set up a kingdom and a throne that would be established forever. Just as the Bible rests on God's promises that we see in the Old Testament coming to fruition in the New, so also your life rests on his faithfulness. Every moment of your life, rests on him being faithful to do what he has promised to do for you let me just give you a couple promises now there's two verses that are going to show up here but let me just go through them quickly romans 8 verses 28 through 30 there's three things promised to you there in verse 28 it's promised that for those who love god he works all things for good in verse 29 it's promised that he will conform you to the image of his son and in verse 30, it's promised that if you have been called, if you have been justified, you will be glorified. So there's three promises alone right there. God works all things together for your good, which your good is to be conformed to the image of his son, and you will see glory. And then, just in case that wasn't enough, let me add one more for you in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. That he who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. God started something in you. He will not let it not come to fruition. He will finish what He started. He is faithful to do that. That's what all these promises in the Old Testament are saying. He will be faithful to do what He promised to do. And if God promised that He began a work in you, He will be faithful to finish it. It's not a passive life for you and me, but it is a life that relies solely upon God being faithful to what he has already said he would do in us. Just as God was faithful to do what he promised in sending Jesus, God will be faithful to hold you till the end for those who trust in Jesus. So we've seen God's faithfulness to His promises. But let me get more specific here. There's, our second point gets real specific with this offspring. We see some, some names of this offspring in the Old Testament that tell us who this offspring is. We don't just see what this offspring does, like we saw at the beginning. Now we see who this offspring is. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin... Shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. So now we have a virgin who's going to conceive a child. This child is going to be a son, but this son is going to be called Emmanuel. This son's name is going to be God is with us. Now, Israel could hear this, or we might think Israel could hear this and say, simply what what is meant here is Emmanuel means God is near to us, right? That God is walking alongside us, not that God is actually physically here with us. But we know, first of all, you should have an indicator from us studying the Gospel of John that when you see the word sign here, that it's pointing to a greater reality. Sign is not just in and of itself the end. A sign points to something else, But if that's not enough, look at what Matthew says about this. We already read verse 21, but we'll read it again. Matthew chapter 1. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So now we have Matthew quoting Isaiah chapter 7, saying that this... Jesus is Emmanuel, and this Jesus is the one who's going to save people from their sins. Well, the only one who could save people from their sins was God himself. So to say God with us is not just saying, oh, God in Jesus has come close to us. It's saying God is here. He's present now in the person of Jesus. That's the only way that God is able to save his people. If God becomes incarnate and takes on flesh, that's the only way to save us. If that wasn't enough for you, look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This one you all probably know. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child is born. A child who is a son. Right, Same, same language from chapter 7 but look at what his name is. How can his name be Everlasting Father? How can his name be called Mighty God and he's not God in the flesh? What other option are you going to say this son is if his name is Mighty God? Here's the point. This promised offspring in the Old Testament, this child who is one day going to come, God didn't arbitrarily choose some random person and say, I'm going to try to be close to these people through this person. God chooses him who is nearest and dearest to him, his own son. The one he has promised from the moment Adam and Eve sinned and said, I'm going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent, my own son which is, in a sense, God sending himself. The sinful world's only hope is God. So that's what God does. He does something. He acts. When nothing else in the world could save us, he did. You ever been in a situation when you're walking through a store and you see a child walking around alone? What do you think in that moment? I assume most of us probably think, if I don't do something for this kid, who knows what might happen to them, right? You see yourself as the last hope for that child. Now, you might be right, you might be wrong, right? the, The parent could be literally just around the corner and everything might be fine, or this child really could be lost and something terrible could have happened to them. But we think, I don't see anybody else trying to help I have to. I'm the only one who can do something. Now we might be right or wrong. For God in this situation, it's right. He's the only one that could help. Our only hope is that God will act. That he and his son will place the fullness of himself. So this is a reminder that not a single offer this world could ever make you is possible to save you. The world says to you, have more stuff, have more influence, and you will have more opportunities with the more money that you make. The world says to you, people will like you more if you accept certain sins in life and just cancel your religion. The world says to you, live a life based on how you feel. Nobody should be allowed to offend your feelings. The world says to you, you're a good person based on how much you allow other people to live based on their feelings. Not a single one of those things, though, offers you eternity. It might seem good to you for the here and now, but honestly, it only seems good to you if your ultimate reality is the here and now, if you think there is nothing to come later. But right here and now is not your ultimate reality. Your reality is you live in a sinful world full of sinful people who have sinful hearts, who desperately need God. God must do something in order to change us. And he does. And this is our last point as we get to the end. The realized circumcision. Now I link this to the coming child because circumcision for Abraham specifically was the sign of the covenant that God had made with him. God made it, makes this covenant with Abraham and he says, here's my way of confirming to you that I'm going to be faithful to these promises. I'm making this covenant with you. And Abraham's side of the covenant was circumcision. Look at Genesis chapter 17. We'll see this. Starting in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which shall keep you between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. If you weren't circumcised, you weren't part of the covenant. Now we see this, and we can understand how the Jewish people take this and they run with it, right? Right? That they see circumcision given as the sign of the covenant, and then they ultimately see the law 430 years later, and they say, we must do these things to be saved. We must do these things to stay in the covenant. But it's not much later in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy that we see God tell his people that this is just a physical thing to point to a greater spiritual reality. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He's giving them the law right before they're about to enter the promised land. Verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. See, God's promising Israel now a day when the physical sign of circumcision, physical circumcision, no longer needs to be in place because there's a day when heart circumcision is going to take place. And that's the whole point of it. The whole point is physical circumcision was to to illustrate a reality that something actually internal of people needs to be cut out. That all of us have sinful hearts that need to be removed Right? We see, he says, he even told us, right right in Genesis 17, that circumcision was a sign. It was supposed to point to something greater, to a greater reality. And what we end up seeing is in this coming child, the one person in human history who doesn't need his heart to be circumcised because he's God in the flesh, this child comes and he fulfills the law Perfectly meaning physical circumcision is no longer the sign in place because as we place our faith in Christ, we now share in his righteousness. But now the sign of our covenant is not physical circumcision, but heart circumcision. Our last passage, we'll see Paul give some insight to this in Romans chapter 2 starting in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The Spirit performs the heart circumcision that we need to take place, that the physical circumcision was just a sign of. Faith is not determined by external obedience, but faith is determined by heart transformation. I've been learning in recent years how to fix things on our vehicles by themselves, by myself. Right now, that's not always an easy thing to do, but we had something, uh, our, car, our family car within the last year started overheating in Louisville, so I, I had to pull off the side of the road and cool it off, and got about a, another mile down, had to cool it off again, I prayed, and I got home, which was like another, I don't know, three or four miles, I did research online, figured out it was probably the thermostat going bad, so I looked up a YouTube video on how to change it, went and bought the part and spent like four hours out there finally and I got it changed and everything's been fine since. But if I had got deep into that motor and pulled out the thermostat and simply sprayed it off and blew on it and even painted it nice and shiny and put it back in, would I have been successful? By no means. Because the bad part needs removed and the new Part needs to replace it. Now we're switching from car from vehicles to people. The bad heart needs removed, and a new heart needs put back into place. Brothers and sisters, this coming child is the one who can perform the heart surgery you need. First, for anyone coming to Christ for the first time in your life, you need a heart surgery. To trust in Christ over the things that this world offers you requires some sort of change in your heart. Because nobody decides to follow a crucified and resurrected Savior unless your heart has shifted. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to the world to follow this Savior but also anyone who is walking with Christ, we still have to continually inspect and operate on our own hearts by the power of the Spirit. Let me give you some examples from life, from my own life. When I'm in seminary and I get an A on a test, I have to immediately search my heart and fight the urge of pride and say, look how how good I did. And I have to turn and say, thank you, Lord, for giving me knowledge so that I might understand you better. Whenever I sigh at home when somebody makes a request of me, I have to immediately look at my heart and say, am I sighing because I'm truly exhausted and don't have their energy, or am I sighing because this request is inconvenient for me? Or if I'm frustrated with my child disobeying me, am I frustrated because it takes time to deal with that disobedience, or am I frustrated because I see my child rebelling against God? Now, some of you might hear this and say, that seems like a lot of work. Exactly. It is. Did you expect otherwise? Why wouldn't us living a life in the light surrounded by a world of darkness? Why wouldn't that require a lot of work? Or when you think of what Jesus said. He said to pick up your cross and follow me. We live in a world that says the opposite. The world that says promote yourself. Why wouldn't it be hard work to constantly have to look at your heart and say, am I denying myself or am I promoting myself? You have to remember the reality. Heart work is hard work, but it's holy work. Those who have trusted in Christ believe that heart work is essential to the Christian life. Now, some of it gets easier. Some of it, as you become more aware of your own heart, you immediately start to recognize, did that with a wrong motivation, did that with a good motivation. But that doesn't mean that the time it takes to operate on your heart when you do it with bad motivation gets any less. It just means you recognize the problem quicker. It doesn't mean that it's quicker to operate on it. You still have to continue to look at your heart and speak to your heart and contemplate your heart and operate on your heart and figure out what it is in your heart that's making you have that bad response. All of it done by the power of the Spirit, we saw. But this is what the coming child offers as he comes fulfilling God's promises. He offers defeat of the serpent at the cross he offers blessing to all nations if you just trust in him he offers a kingdom that will be established forever and he does this because it's a son who comes in the god's god in the flesh saving his people from their sins for those who trust in the savior this salvation coming through this child, we receive a heart circumcision so that we might live a life that bears the image of this child so that our lives will be conformed more to the image of Christ. We receive a heart circumcision so that we can live a life that shares the news of this child as we witness about Jesus. And we receive a heart circumcision so that we can long for the return of this child for the day that Jesus comes back. Just as Israel expected a Savior, but they did it with some wrong interpretations of what some of these passages meant, may we await our Savior. That this child who grew up was crucified. And may we fixate our hearts on him on Christ, on this child as we await the day that Christ will come back again. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are thankful that you are faithful to your promises. That you are faithful to send Jesus the offspring that blesses, the offspring that reigns, the offspring that defeats, and crushes the head of the, of the serpent. And we, thank, we thank you that we know you'll be faithful to your promises to us, that you work all things for good, to conform us to the image of Jesus, that we will see glory, that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. May we live our lives with correct anticipation of you coming again, of Christ coming again, and setting up the full full fulfillment of the kingdom that will be established forever. But as we wait for that day, may we continue to inspect and operate on our own hearts. May we each day find the places in our heart where we're tempted and we're falling into the temptation to trust in ourselves, to trust in the things of this world. May they be exposed by the light of Christ and may by the power of your spirit, may we bring them into the light and have them transformed that we might live lives that are pleasing to you in those areas. Do heart surgery on us, Father. Work in us this week. And as we anticipate this celebration of Christ's birth, may we, may we fixate our eyes on Him, not on all the noise of the world going on around us. This coming child who one day is crucified and then is resurrected for our salvation. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.